commentary, technology, preparedness, and pop culture. From Nashville, Tennessee, the home of the Moon Pie. I'm Jess, the straight Christian conservative one. And I'm Chris, a gay Buddhist libertarian. We will explore today's issues with opposing viewpoints. And feature guests with incredible or unique stories. We may see things differently. But in the end, this is... Still, still love, love you, bro. bro. Yeah, uh... Everything in the intro was not happening today except for the guest with unique stories because uh, this is an intro recorded after we did our interview uh, and we just forgot to do our proper intro. <laughs> you know what? So, yeah, but it's okay being out of order because we'll put it in order and our listeners will never know. That's except right. That we just told Ex- you. Yeah, exactly. Except I just mentioned that straight off the bat. Hey, Chris, how are you? You know, I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. I think good. it's been a good week. Getting some stuff out of the way. but It's less about how we feel, though, and how our listeners feel. Exactly. Uh, we want to keep trying to find topics that interest them, and and I think we have. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a really great guest coming up, and uh, Chris is going to introduce this guest shortly. So we just want to thank you for listening, and uh, hope you tune in and enjoy this podcast. This, uh, like, what, 50 minutes long, 55 minutes? Yes, it'll be a long one, but it'll be a very interesting guest. Um, before we get into it, though, is there anything in the news recently that you'd like to talk about oh gosh chris there's a lot in the news i know i, I had i had one thing um and let me pull it up real quick i uh i saved it as a bookmark on my phone because i had to talk about it um, i'm getting the age where some things i don't remember if i write down and i remember driving through town the other day listening to a talk show and they said something and i was like oh my I almost ran off the road i was like oh, i gotta to ask jesse about that on the podcast oh do you have it and you, i didn't write it? it where i'm no! going with this is i didn't write it down Dad gummit i do so, that all the time <laughs> i know i think of things that i really want to talk about and i'm like oh surely i'll remember that because it's so important and then just uh never do it so what i've reverted to is either taking a screenshot of it or saving it as a bookmark but my mother does that i had to back up and restore her iphone and there were like 6 million screenshots of stuff and I do that. I write. I have a lot of notebooks. I make a lot of notes. Yeah. Well, there goes my phone, but it's good because uh, I have what I uh, wanted to talk about. So this is actually a report um, from Summit.News. I'm not really sure the you know validity of this source, but it is uh, it is interesting. So this is a report. Um, the Pentagon is now going to be tracking web search histories um, for what they call extremist behavior. And some of this extremist behavior... Here we uh, go with the spying again. Yeah, yeah. So th- it is anything that questions um, the cause Black Lives Matter. It's search results specifically thinking the truth about Black Lives Matter. That's what, they, that's what they're calling that, quote-unquote. Yeah. Any search result says the truth about Black Lives Matter, um, you are now going to be put into a category of um, white supremacist extremism. I'm totally searching for that. I started. I've already searched it for it like fifty thousand times. Oh <laughs> put God. myself on that list. I hear the sirens now. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm surprised but, they haven't found a so little bunker. So how yet. do they? Obviously, it's you know they they know what device you're using, but if you reset your tracking, how are they tying that to you? This is what I haven't figured out yet because I know that this um, search result tracking is meant to be. I don't know. When these reports come out, it's very confusing on how exactly they're tracking these results. I don't know if it's on a on a person-by-person basis where they're actually going to Google and they're saying, hey, we need you to give this guy search history. I don't know how they even have the authority to do that um, You know, un, uh, without a warrant, ask for someone's search history just to track data, to catch crimes before they're committed. I mean – Man, that's, that's that's kind of Orwellian. Isn't yeah, what's it? the show where the uh, like the there was a ball that came down a tr- uh, a track and it had like a, a there were this group of people laying in water. They were called precogs, and they would have a vision, 
and a ball would roll down a track and it would identify a person who's about to commit a crime. I think like Tom what? Cruise was in it. That it's, sounds like some yeah, that Minority sounds, Report. Okay. That's yeah, it. There you yeah. Go. It sounds like minority report stuff. So, you know, that is the question. If if a company, Google, which is a private company, has all your information and you voluntarily give it to them, does the government have the ability to come in and say, We would like a copy? Well, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Um, and this kind of ties back in I don't have this article, but it ties back into an interesting development that I found, and that's that um, uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, has uh, been talking about how they're working with companies like Facebook and Twitter uh, and reviewing content and telling them which people they should ban or remove their content. So this is now the federal government working with a private industry and directing them who directing them to ban certain people based upon their speech. So basically what you have is a private company like Facebook or, or Twitter acting as an arm of the federal government because they're banning people on suggestion of the White House or of the, uh, I don't even know who the FBI, who's, who's going to be the Department of Homeland Security. They're doing this in the guise of, of, of uh, stopping vaccine misinformation. That's being their big thing. This is the same thing where I talked about how they were working with SMS carriers to cut down on vaccine and misinformation. I mean, I mean, this is this is straight up Orwellian, Chris. It's really, really scary. But the I guess the bright side is is now that these companies are taking instruction from the federal government, somebody can sue them and say, "Hey, uh, because you're acting on the advice of the federal government, you violated my First Amendment rights by banning me on this platform." Um, because the federal government cannot silence you. Um, for political reasons, and regardless of what you think about the vaccine, it is a political issue and it is divisive right now. Not, not you know, half the country does not believe a certain way about the COVID vaccine, and the other half does. So, one of my favorite quotes was a Chinese curse, but it's translated: "May you live in interesting times." I don't like that. And boy, do we live in interesting times, yeah, right? No kidding. The, the I governments mean, reading our text messages, and it's insane. Well, it's not like it's not been done before, but you know. I mean, you've got like Watergate and other incidents where the government's doing something they really shouldn't do through a private agency. But, um, well, I guess we'll find out how that happens. Um, funny enough, our guest uh, is from the government and he's here to help. <laughs> We've had a lot of government oh, representation on our show. And it's oh, good boy. because, you know, and you'll hear us talk about this. We we can give you our opinions and we can tell you things. And to us, we're just Chris and Jess. And you know, we have we have done this podcast. You don't know our backgrounds and yeah. whatnot, and we we've we've kind of kept that a secret, um, just because we want these opinions to be our own, not our employers. So when we bring guests that have incredible or unique stories or a a, gr- a b- bunch of knowledge, I think that just drives it home that mm-hmm. you know if we're talking about it on our podcast and employees from federal government or agencies or anybody that just isn't a subject matter expert knows then maybe people will stop and listen to you know, Perhaps, some of the things yeah. of technology or, or rights that we talk about. And that's kind of what our next guest is here for. Um, and you'll once again, we're about to introduce him. Um, he is uh, a very important person, and he knows a lot about the subject of uh, cybersecurity and and um, keeping people uh, from getting scammed out of large, large amounts of money, whether it's the elderly or young people or even uh, someone that's our age. Yep. And I'm going to tell a story before we start. Sure. Go I ahead. I don't know if I've shared this on the show or not, but I shared in a, in a class that I teach. I had a friend who started a restaurant and uh, it was it was in Nashville. And he called one day and he said, hey, I may need your help. Something weird's happened. And this was the opening weekend of the restaurant. 
He said, I got a call from the electric company and they said that my account, albeit new, had a problem with the payment and they needed me to immediately go and make a phone payment. But they only took the phone payment through Green Dot. Mm. So he said, I took their number and I hung up and I called it back and I got the electric company's menuing system and I hit the option to speak with someone. Wow, it was a menuing system. And I got a, a representative who explained the same thing. So I went to Kroger and I got a green dot for $2,000 and I paid it. And he said, I didn't stop to think something was wrong until they called back and said, that didn't work. So the truck is on its way to cut off your electricity. Now, this is opening weekend of his restaurant. And the only thing he's thinking about is I've got to keep the electricity on for my guests. So he didn't, you know, he stopped and thought, mm. well, that's odd. It didn't work. Yeah. And luckily he called me on the way to the store. Turns out these sophisticated, and I'm using air quotes, hackers set up a free, you know, Raspberry Pi phone yep. system and yep. it had a recording. This is the electric company. Press one for so-and-so. It didn't matter which option you, you picked. You oh, got yeah. a scammer yep. who had the same story. So it's that simple how these things happen. And unfortunately, he lost some money on that. Hmm. But, um, but it, he was going to get more, wasn't he? Yeah. And you've this happens in vulnerable times. And vulnerable times aren't just weekends when you've opened a restaurant, it's, you know, you've lost a job from COVID or you've got financial stress. When people are their most vulnerable, they'll believe almost anything. Things where we think and we say, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That goes out of the, out of the picture for people when they're in vulnerable moments. So what we've got to do is educate people that when they're in their most vulnerable moment, they can stop and maybe remember some of the things we talk about. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's a great way to segue into our guests. So, Chris, if you if your pre-recorded self will take it away, we've got a really cool guest today, and I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce him, and we're gonna sell him on his background. Um, our guest today, his name is Scott, and Scott joined the FBI in around 1988. He won't tell you how old he is, but you can do the math. Uh, he became a special agent in 1994, working domestic terrorism, white collar and hate crimes, and computer crimes. Uh, around 2003, he became a supervisory special agent at the FBI headquarters in Washington, uh, running the Cyber Division and Cybercrime Fraud Unit, and managed the Cybercrime Task Force. In 2006, he moved to Nashville and managed the Memphis Computer Intrusion Counterintelligence Squad. That uh, that's, that's quite that a career. Really cool. Yep. So let's welcome to the show, Scott. Scott, how are you? Hey, guys. Good to see you. Can you hear me and can you see the big smile on my face? I know you viewers can. The yeah. listener. You sound happy. Absolutely. Well, the reason I am so happy is because I'm retired from the FBI. <laughs> so this and, means this means all those uh, secret things that you can't talk about, they're all expired, right? So we can get all the juicy information. All kind of and all that <laughs> stuff. But, you know, and, and let me tell you, the number one question I get all the time is Scott, do you miss the FBI? And unfortunately, I go like this, no. No, and, really? Yeah, and let's get the record straight. I had an unbelievable 30-year career. Started in 1988 when I was 20 years old, at a, right out of community college, making five bucks and 50 cents an hour because my mom filled out an application for me because when you graduate community college with a 2.27 grade point average and you're somewhere between mediocre and below average, I always joke the FBI will hire you as a file clerk. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's how, 
that's how I got my start. But and so I had an unbelievable career, you know, 25 years as an agent, most of it spent working cybercrime, 11 years in Nashville, nine in Syracuse, three in DC. If I had my life to do over again, I w- I'd do it over. I'd do it over in a heartbeat. I had a great time that's in good. law enforcement. That's, that's how you know you made a good decision. So you yeah, would do it but, right over again. So when people say to me, hey, how come you don't miss the FBI? Because today I live what I call a passion project life which is doing what I love to do, which is sharing my level of expertise and knowledge. And the only way I got that level of expertise and knowledge was dealing with people and taking it and teaching people how not to become the next cybercrime victim. And when I retired in January of 2018, it was the hardest decision I ever made. I'm going to be honest with you guys. You know, you're in the FBI for 30 years. That becomes your identity. And I came home that night. I didn't have my badge. I didn't have my gun. But it wasn't my identity. My identity was the guy who dealt with cybercrime, taught people how not to become a victim. And I moved right into that role the second I retired. And now I go around the country. I speak. I wrote a book called The Secret to Cybersecurity, which I'm going to make sure I give both of you guys autographed copies of that. Oh, so wow. you'll have to Thank you. Your mailing address. And I'd love to just chat with you guys and tell you a little bit about what's going on in the world of cybercrime, the FBI. And let me tell you, nothing's off limits tonight. Right. That's, that's awesome. exactly why we have him on the show. I, yep. I teach a cybersecurity class and I met Scott through some contacts and I've seen him speak. And when you find somebody, the, the cybersecurity world is very small. Uh, in in reality, and so when you find people that have the same message and and are trying to help people, um, you know, you listen. And and Scott um, Scott has a lot of the same thoughts that I do. So I really wanted him on the show because our listeners hear us talk about oh yeah, you know, compromises and hacks and and telephone calls and you know, and, and to them it's you know it's Chris and Jess telling us this. So you know, with the background that you have at the FBI, we want more people to listen because the sad thing is I've seen a lot of families ruined. I've seen a lot of lives ruined because mm-hmm. they made one simple mistake on the internet. Yep. And so uh, it's all about spreading that message. And I think, you know, Scott is going to be great to do that. Uh, and that's why we have him here. And let's just lead right in, if we could, about your book. I think your book probably encompasses uh, everything about your message. So give us the basic, um, the basic premise. Like, why did you write the book and what is the goal for this book? Well, if you're looking to read a book by an FBI agent who was very technical, saved the day, got a lot of people's money back. It's not my book, guys. Okay. (laughs) Am I doing a good job selling it? Well, I wrote a book called The Secret to Cybersecurity, A Simple Plan to Protect Your Family and Protect Your Business. And and I put family first because in my 11 years in Nashville, I looked behind the scenes. I've dealt with almost a thousand victims. A lot of them were really large organizations, large educational Fortune 500 companies. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't lose any sleep when they were victimized. Mm-hmm. You want to know Why? Because I had to deal with the nonprofit organizations. I had to deal with just what I dealt with with my neighbor just two days ago who came over to me because he was very upset because one of his elderly friends who has cancer has cancer and the wife has onset dementia 
And all of a sudden, he gets a phone call from the IRS saying that unless he pays $35,000, he's going to go to jail. And unfortunately, what do you think he did? Or just the other day, and, and these are things so they don't stop as I retired, and I'm still talking about the same thing. Like the woman who got an email from Amazon saying that she was owed a tech, she was owed a refund. And when she clicked on the link, there was no malware at all in the email. And all she went to the website, she went over, and they said, in order to get your refund, please provide us with your bank account and routing information, mm. and we're going to send you a $0.07 cent deposit to test it. And then you send us back $0.10. Cents. Wow. And they got rid, and then they, I don't know how, I have no idea how, but they exfiltrated $300,000 out of her bank account. Holy cow. $300,000. Wow. And this is what would happen every day. And it would go on. And so when people say, Scott, what do you do for a living? I teach individuals and organizations how to reduce their chances of becoming the next cybercrime victim without spending money on additional products or services mm -hmm. or without being technical. And that is, and I'm the only retired former law enforcement guy who's not selling a product or a service because here's the bottom line, the cybercrime problem is going up and we keep spending more money on trying to be safe. Now I'm gonna ask you guys a question over here. Cybercrime problem going up, amount of money we're spending going up. What does it mean to you when we spend money to stay safe and the problem gets worse. It's not the, effective solutions. It's not. You're exactly right. We're spending money on the wrong product. We're mm -hmm. spending money on technology when we should be spending it on people. And education of people. And education. Yeah. Well, you know what it means to me? It means we're not doing it right. right. Sure. I'm going to point blank. Because I'm at a conference one day, and I speak at conferences around the country, and all of a sudden it's a vendor-driven event, and the guy comes over to me afterwards and he says, Scott, we don't like your messaging. So the first thing I do is I check, uh, did the guy pay me? Because if it, that depends on how I'm going to answer the question. There you go. <laughs> and, and I go, what did you not like about my message? And he said, we didn't like the fact that you say that a majority of cybercrime victimizations could easily be prevented without spending money. And I'm like, so what didn't you like about that? He says to me, if you talk like that, people aren't going to want to buy our products and services. <laughs> and I'm oh, like, yeah. time out. I didn't say we don't spend money. All I'm saying is if you don't do what I tell you to do for free, which is what I've learned, which are some of the commonalities in dealing with a thousand victims, it doesn't matter. So how mm -hmm. does that make you guys feel? Well, the, when I'm getting segments telling me don't say that message. Oh, yeah. That's, people aren't understanding the problem. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. And going along with what you said, you know, uh, you can buy all the antivirus, all the, all the you know, anti-malware products you want. You can buy, some, or buy a, you know, a red team to come and uh, uh, penetration test your business. But if you have one weak link in your education of your employees or of your family – all that's going to be completely bypassed. I mean, the the incident you just talked about where the guy called, said he was from the IRS, that had nothing to do with computers, that had nothing to do with security, that was social engineering. And all it was was someone manipulating someone who doesn't know any better. 
And that's where I believe a lot of our problem is right now is is um, people don't understand how to react to these things. They don't know the processes that are actually going to take place when someone calls you like that. And I think, too, during COVID, people have become more vulnerable. Mm. You know, people have lost jobs. People have been more desperate. And I think the the amount of people seeing uh, emails saying that they've won $1,000 or, you know, a million dollars from a crate in Nigeria, I think, you know, there are people who have been a little bit more receptive of that. And I know cybersecurity has many webs and we can, we'll probably sit and talk for hours some point. Uh, but, but, you know, for the purpose of the show, there's a couple things I want to hit on. Um, Stir Shaken just got released and I know it's still in the early phases, but most of the major phone carriers are compliant. But from my research and reading forums, the problem hasn't stopped. So what are your thoughts on, on the telemarketing scams, the, the robo-dialers? Um, you know, how familiar are you with Stir Shaken? Is that going to help that nexus of, of um, you know, cybersecurity? Well, tell the audience a little bit about Stir Shaken for anyone who doesn't know. Sure. So we talked about this on a previous show, but Stir Shaken essentially ensures that if you own a telephone number and when you pass through all the carriers of a telephone call, it's an authenticated call. So you can't be an unknown actor who, um, you know, buys a, a, a number, buys data from bandwidth.com and then starts, yeah, start spoofing your number because at some point the, the, uh, the, actually the shaken protocol will catch that and say, this is not the genuine owner of this number and stop it. So in the technical description of stir shaken, you have authentication of a phone number. So you couldn't, and that was part of our discussion, yeah. you know, we a were, hobbyists couldn't change their outgoing caller ID for somebody working from home. And where I'm trying to tie this in, Scott, is that, you know, when, when the grandmother scam happens or, you know, when you get those phone calls from people who are going to start telling you they're from the IRS, you know, how do you stop those? Because I don't think that's going to do. That's a big... Oh, no. Remember, there's no... We cannot control what the bad guys do. All we can control is how we act. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens. We put all the authentication protocols in place to block these unverified numbers. And now what happens... My mom gets a text message and it's coming from the IRS. But remember now the text message, our cell phone numbers are almost identifiable numbers with ourselves. Because remember, every single place you go, they're like, hey, enter in your cell phone number so you can get your Kroger bonus points. Because yeah. I don't know about you, I want to save 30 cents a gallon each week on gasoline and on this. So we have to become that human firewall to be able to realize that email, text messages, telephone calls are 90% of the problem. Yep, That has been the tool in the tool belt that the cyber criminals have had. And I'm going to kind of walk you guys through a little scenario here because I'm going to tell you, and I bet you're never going to guess, in the past month, what do you think that I think is the cybercrime meteor that's about to hit the earth or it has hit the earth? Mm. What incident has happened? And I'm telling you, nobody's, nobody's covering this in the news. Is it the LinkedIn hack, perhaps? All the uh, user data? It's the Rockstar 2021 8.8 billion username and password data dump that's on the web. Rockstar. Right what is that from? It's for everything. It's kind oh. of out there. It's a collection of 8.8 .8 billion usernames and passwords. Huh. So what I want to kind of do with you guys is kind of walk you through this. And I'm going to explain to you why I think this is so horrible 
And nobody's covering this. Okay, 8.8 .8 billion usernames and passwords stolen that are sitting on the dark web. The cyber criminals have no idea what to do. And, you know, I used to talk so much about keystroke loggers and malware that steals your username and password. You don't need that. All that information's yeah, on the dark that's web. That's not the game anymore. So what's the problem? 66% of the population is using the same password for multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. We just talked about that before the show. We were just mentioning that. We had somebody say, well, what does somebody need with my Disney Plus login? Mm -hmm. And we had to explain oh. to them, yeah, your your credit card information or you're potentially yeah. using the same password. Exactly. So, yeah. Or even just the email from it. Yeah. Now, so think about that. Now, have you guys been to the site, Have I Been Pwned yet? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Love that one. <laughs> so you go on that now, and this is what I tell everyone to do. Let's check this. Because now I went on it and I go like this. LinkedIn, okay, I know about that. Canva, I know about that. There's something called Apollo. And they have all my information. I have no control over that. Mm -hmm. So let's say we, and I've dealt with so many cases where people have thought it was a sophisticated data breach, but it was nothing more than account compromise. And let's think about this. A majority of our information is out there. So when I sit down and when I go over and I talk to companies, I ask them, I go, what's the most important piece of information that you have. What platforms do you have information on right now? And let's think about this and do this little exercise together. What information do we have out there that if the bad guy stole our username and password would cause us grief and destroy our personal life? Email address. Yeah. Okay, we don't want bad guys in our email account. Yeah, because you can um, compromise every other account with that. It's an authentication mm -hmm. method. So Yeah. Okay, what else? What do you think, Chris? I, you know, I wouldn't want them to have anything of mine, but um, I, my banking login. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even medical records. I mean, yeah, there's value to anything. Some of those online about, medical hey, things. Both of you guys look like paranoid guys. Uh, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> oh. Hey, do you guys have any cameras in your house? Well, Chris. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got a couple in my apartment. Well, let's think about this. Out of those 8.8 .8 billion usernames and passwords, how many of those do you think maybe are for camera systems? Even if it's one percent, that's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And and forget about let's let's get rid of the ring doorbell. Who? I, because honestly, if you get access to the ring doorbell and you look outside of my house, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Any of you guys have cameras inside of your house? Yeah. yeah. Yep, we both do. Okay. And what happens like if you went to any of these platforms and you went there and you logged in, can you get access to the user? Can you get access to the system? Generally uh, speaking, unless you're in cybersecurity and you VP into your network and view them locally. Right. You don't, uh, you don't have an open. Yeah. But a lot of these systems right now, I mean, to just think about this on my cell phone, how many of us could log in and look at the cameras from our apps? The convenience what? factor is there for yeah. most people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why else am I going to get a camera unless I can do that? You know what else is mission critical? Any iPhone users out there? Because people ask me all the time, hey, is anyone hacking into iPhones? And I go, of course not. I said, you don't need to hack into an iPhone. All you need to do is get the... How many of... How, out of those 8.8 .8 billion... 
how many do you think are iCloud accounts? Oh, yeah, surely. Or maybe your AT&T accounts. Or how many? And now let's think about this on the business side. Because in order for you to get this, you got to think about it. Because if the cyber criminals get into your stuff at home, I'm just going to tell you, the cyber criminals steal your stuff. Law enforcement is not getting your stuff back. And putting the bad guys in jail is incredibly difficult, Mr. Overseas. Now let's talk about business. In the old days, we used to call it shadow IT. You know what I call it now? What's that? SaaS platforms, software as a service. Right. Mm -hmm. Salesforce. What else can you guys think about that? What was that RMM that had uh, trouble recently? Yeah, there was a remote management monitoring tool mm -hmm. um, that had a compromise recently that had many customers in one interface. Yeah, lo lots of enterprise customers. Um, they got that through a, a drive-by download, I believe, for an update. So I just dealt with a situation last night where I had a title company. I was seeing tons of business email compromises in the real estate sector. And in order for the bad guys, they intercepted a fax. And I go, nobody has a fax machine. And I asked them, I said, who do you use for your fax? They go, Ring Central. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh, interesting. Now, and I never even thought, I, no, yeah. you know, that's why I love to do these exercises with people. And I like to do them in a room because you're always learning things. You know what happens if the bad guys get access to your AT&T or Verizon account? Anything they want. Yeah. Yeah. They can take your number, take your, you know, order a new SIM card, put it in your phone, then become you, essentially, you know. Yeah. So that's why when we look at this, and then we got to change our password so we can't use the same password because here's two real big indicators of if you're going to be a cybercrime victim. Are you using the same password for multiple platforms? And even when you do have secure passwords, are you using two-factor authentication? Because think about those 8.8 .8 billion usernames and passwords. The bad guy is going to start ripping through these accounts. And the ones that don't have two-factor authentication, they're getting into. Absolutely. And unfortunately, 10% of the population is using it. And I know two-factor will probably turn them off from your account because there's no way they're going to sit there and try to get that out of you when they have hundreds of other accounts that don't use it that they can probably hit and uh, make the guess, you know? The one thing that frustrates me, when I, when I teach classes and I talk to people, Everybody understands the idea, I think, or most people, about two-factor. But one of the challenges, I think, is that it's it's overcomplicated for your average person to do because there are so many different types of apps to do it. There are so many implementations of it. The general population that I speak to are frustrated with having to manage that extra factor, whether it be through text message or or preferably an app. How do you get past that? How do you train people that that little extra time could save you a lot of money later. Now, when I sit down with a company and they tell me they don't want to do it, you know what my response is? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if you do it or not. But however, my buddy Matt Dunn, who maybe you know, he, 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 he worked with me in cyber. He's working for Kroll now and he's doing intrusion response work. And they're making so much money in intrusion response and a majority of the compromises are coming out of account compromise. Mm -hmm. 
that all could have been prevented with two-factor authentication. So I tell these clients of mine, if you don't want to do it, I'm okay, but let me give you Matt's home number. When you have an incident, you call them 24-7, mention my name, they'll take 10% off your five, six, or seven-figure engagement, and <laughs> kick me back 25%. Yeah. And I go, wow. I can't say kick back, I'm former law enforcement. It's called finder's game. <laughs> That's I it. Said, I said, I can make more money just making money that way. But God, that's why we have to do these yeah. things. And people say to me all the time, well, SMS text is insecure. Well, it kind of is because of the SIM swapping. And if the bad guys get access to your Verizon, it's game over. But so few people are doing it that the bad guys are not going to go through the time. And I don't like to say security through, what is it, obscurity. But use it, start with it, figure it out. Because if not, you will be the next online identity theft victim. And remember what I said, law enforcement's not gonna wave a magic wand and putting the bad guys in jail. If you're like a New York guy who gets really, you know, an eye for an eye is what we like. So let, let me just kind of go back in time a little bit because when I started as an FBI agent in Syracuse, if you'd asked me to define the role of an FBI agent, it was easy. Bad people did bad things to good people. I worked with state and local cops. We put bad guys in jail. What a fun and exciting job at the time for a 27-year-old kid mm -hmm. from Brooklyn, New York, a gun, a badge, a bulletproof vest, playing cops and robbers. I mean, I didn't join the FBI to work cyber. I got sucked into it. But one of the things that I realized as a single FBI agent in Syracuse the harder I worked, the more bad guys I put in jail, the better I felt about myself. So it was this revolving circle that really boosted my identity. Right. Because, man, you know, here I am. I'm on top of the world. You know, I'm working these crazy cases and stuff. Every day is a new, exciting day. And then when I worked in cybercrime, what did I realize? The harder I worked, the more I had to deal with victims. I dealt with a thousand victims. I couldn't get their money back. I couldn't put the bad guys in jail. I hit this wall because the harder you work, the more frustrated you got. Hmm. Because you know, you know what it's like, guys, and you know you've you're in my position when all you want to do is help people and you can't help them. Yeah. And then I had that epiphany where I was like, holy moly. 90% of this stuff could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. We had one of the agents in the office, I don't know if you know him, Victor Rodriguez. Yeah. Ultra technical guy. He's so brilliant. I never had to let him out of his cage because I was able to handle this. And there were commonalities. And the majority of these things could have been prevented. That's when I got my obsession, where I realized that I had the ability to help people. And when I would share my information, and the more people I went out and the more people I helped, the better I felt. So that's how it's kind of went full circle in all these years. So while we're on the subject of, of your early years at the FBI, is there anything, a memorable case, and it doesn't have to necessarily be cyber, but is, is there a case that you've worked that's kind of stuck with you and, and you've thought about or, you know, maybe one of the biggest cases of your career? The, one of the biggest cases, and I try to tell it quickly, and, it's, and as you guys know, I can't answer a yes or no question without a long story. Uh, <laughs> I that guy. But back in probably 98, 
uh, I got a lead from my Harrisburg office that the state police, because I, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, I was in an eight-man office. I couldn't do my job without local law enforcement. And I, I, I partner with local and state law enforcement all the time. And it was a lot easier in New York because after work, you were able to drink beer in bars with your cop buddies. Like we had cop bars. Hmm. What a, what did it, you know, I realized wow. you're not allowed to do that in Tennessee, but that was the whole thing. And you had... <laughs> camaraderie. But I got a lead that this woman dies in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And when the state police investigators going through her computer, she finds images of the movie images of this woman having sex with her young children. And she emails a copy of it to this guy in Syracuse, New York. And that's it. And that was the only lead was to go. There was nothing to do but just for information purposes that, hey, there's this guy in your area. And I start putting together this case and they did the forensics of his computer. This is back in 98. And they find out that she has she dies of a drug overdose and she's doing bad things to her kid under the direction of this guy. Mm. And this is the only pieces of the puzzle that I have are some documents on her computer that are IRC chat with her chatting with him where he gives her directions to do these things to the kid. He doesn't touch the kids at all. Wow. So I build a case up on this guy here because he moves in with this other woman and... I contact the behavioral analysis unit at FBI headquarters, the, the profilers that I always went, nah, that stuff doesn't work. And I gave them the facts and all the chat logs and all these videos. And they said, look, he is, he is a preferential sex offender. He does not get off on doing bad things to kids. He gets off on this. He had a bondage domination relationship with this woman. So they gave me enough information to go out and interview the guy because he's moving in and he's living with these other kids. I have so little evidence to go on that we have to try to somehow get him to talk to us. And as soon as we devise this scheme and we talk to him at his place of business, I get him to admit that he knows the woman and I trick him. I'm going to be honest with you. It was okay. I told him we were in, we were there because we believe the ex-husband murdered the woman mm. and he goes, oh my God, I thought so. So he opens up to me and the profiler said that he would admit his sexual relationship with him. Now, the only real piece of evidence that I had was on IRC chat Someone with the handle kick toy is giving the woman instructions. Mm. You know, on IRC back in the old days where you guys were probably almost in public school at the time when IRC was around. <laughs> I don't know about that. All right. <laughs> I was. Thanks, he Jesse. Was. <laughs> okay. Oh, me. He admits to me he's kick toy. Oh, and wow. The, and that's the piece of evidence that, that I need. Wow. And then I get him to, there's, there's function, there's... I get him to admit it, and then I get him to really talk about that in the chats, he's giving instructions to give his 
give to perform sexual things. Based on that information, I was able to have him prosecuted for 22 years for aiding and abetting in the production of child pornography. Wow. And he was about to groom the next woman that he was living with with kids to do the same thing. Oh and we goodness. went through all of his computers. That was the only images that he had was those one set of images. And he was a swinger, but he just got off on the ultimate domination and submission. And I put that guy in jail for 22 years. Now, I know on the state side, you guys are like, what the heck? Because, you know, I worked with my state task forces and we couldn't even put people in jail for a year who did actual bad things to kids. Hmm. But this guy just on that one statute. So that was kind of an amazing wow, thing. So you you pretty much prevented probably a lot more kids from being assaulted by this guy's acts. I mean, because sounds like he was just getting started. You said he was starting to groom another uh, family yeah. already. So, wow. And then when I got here to Nashville as the supervisor, I led up our Crimes Against Children Task Force with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And it, we had Franklin Police Department at the time and Dixon and a couple of others, and we were just running and gunning, and there was no shortage, and there still is to this day, of individuals who were having sexual exploitations with kids, because back when I was here in 2007, what was the advice we gave parents? Put the, put the computers in a public place. You can't do that now. Mm, yeah. And we're still seeing that all the time, and now these bad guys are on the dark web, which makes it that much harder. So there's so many challenges that are out there for us because a lot of us are in the position where we have young kids that we have to watch out for and then we have elderly parents. Yeah, and they can, unfortunately, they can both be exploited sometimes in different ways, but it goes towards the same thing. It's, it's you know, education and, and you got to look out for them because a lot of them just, I guess they don't have the uh, mental capacity to, to process those things as easily as, you know, one of us could. And just think about that. I mean, I, I've dealt with many cases where law enforcement officers were victimized. Hmm. I mean, a, anybody could be a cybercrime victim. And there are 294 million people in the United States who are accessing the Internet. Each one of them has to worry about clicking on a link in an email or a text. There's 32 million businesses, 25 million are small businesses that don't have the ability to uh, deal with the simplest things. We got 54 million that are elderly. We got 55 that are K through 12. So mm. there's so much potential. So one of the things I want to ask you guys, what are you guys, what's your, I mean, ransomware, is it yeah. out of control or is it out of control? It's insane. And Chris has big opinions on that um, about how we at least, move in the right direction, right, Chris, as far as what the big companies are doing to hurt the situation. Yeah, and, and that's one thing I also was going to ask you, you know, I've seen two, two, two trains of thought about do you pay it or do you not? Oh, I, and, oh my God, that's the best question. And mm -hmm. I keep telling people no, and uh, and the reason is because when you feed a fire, the fire grows. Oh. Now, tell me, am I wrong or am I right? What is your thoughts? Oh, you know, who was the great poet that said, a plan is a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Always. Mike Tyson, right? <laughs> <laughs> Great poet. <laughs> Great poet. That's hilarious. That's, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have lots of one-liners. Because, oh, okay, yeah. when I was with the FBI, you know what I told everyone? Don't pay the ransom. 
there's a ghost to support bad guys. Uh, you might not get your stuff back. It's just bad practice. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting the best business case scenarios. The phone would ring. Somebody would call me up. And I would say, look, you're going to be okay as long as you got to have a good backup in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'd put Wah. the phone in my ear and there would be not, there'd be dead silence. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now here, there was a couple of things that happened. They found out that they were backing up their stuff and they couldn't restore it because there was a problem. Mm. And the other one is, and this is what we're, because I want to ask you guys, think about this. If you, how long can an organization survive if all their information is encrypted? You know, it depends on the type of business, but not long. I mean, with that's, with, that's a good answer. Not, not long. Not long mm-hmm. at all. And now what I'm seeing is we're looking at this the complete wrong way. It's not do we pay or if we don't pay. It's how do we prevent it? And let me tell you, we're doing it all wrong. Backing up is not prevention. Mm-hmm. Backing up is making the availability because this is what the cyber criminals are doing right now. They're doing their reconnaissance on the network. They're finding your stuff. They'll exfiltrating your stuff. They take a copy of it. Then they go over and they encrypt your backups first, and then they encrypt you. Yep. Um, now, I mean, you know what that's called? Pay and pray. <laughs> there you go. Pay, they have a little bit of goodwill in them, right? I mean, it sounds to me like doing a backup on your on your systems is like, let's say you go to the doctor, they say you got a heart problem, you need to work out, you need to eat better, all that. Well, instead of doing all that, I'm going to go buy an AED and put it in my room and hope that I have the sense to put it on myself before I have finished my heart attack, you know? Uh, that sounds like what these businesses are going through because they, they do the due diligence and they have the remedy, um, but they're not cold backups. They're, they're backups that are connected to their system. They're accessible to these criminals and the ones that know what they're doing, like you said, they're going to take out the backups because... Why would they get paid if they have a, you know, a quick solution? But we're not really focusing on the cause. So you pay you pay your ransom and you don't fix the vulnerability and then you get hit on a Wednesday. So I'm not a discussion one day and I'm sitting here with the uh, insurance guy. And for all the years you know me, sometimes my sarcasm goes from one to a hundred just like this. And... I'm sitting here with the insurance guy. And after he goes, I go, so let me get this straight. It was back from my days of being, you know, taking the FBI crisis negotiation course 20 years ago. I just remember, paraphrase, okay? (laughs) Right. I go, so let me get this straight. What you're telling me is, I'm, I'm a homeowner. I have you as an insurance company. If there's a fire, you're going to send me a dedicated fire truck with a coach who's going to help the firemen (laughs) to help me through this incident. But one of the things we didn't talk about is prevention. Yep. And I'm tired of it because in 2015, the FBI came out with a ransomware prevention guidance that I was giving, trying to get meetings with some of the largest organizations in the area when I was trying to talk to them about ransomware in 2015. And what do you think, Ma, do you think, how do you think I was greeted when I wanted to sit down and talk to companies? Not well. I, I think they they first thought about, well, this is, this is going to cost, and I think we're doing it 
Okay. Probably mm. not well. Yep. Yeah, same thing. And that was the same year that we gave business email compromise guidance. So people go like this all the time and do this. Now, I'm going to tell you guys and your listeners something today because I think, you know, you said you wanted some juicy information. Well, I'm going to confirm something for you that you probably have not gotten any true confirmation for today. Okay, so I don't want either of you guys to pass out or fall down, but I'm going to admit to you as a retired FBI agent, without a doubt, that the Russians have been hacking us. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I had to catch myself for a minute. We edited out the part where we fell on the floor just in, yeah. <laughs> I could sense the sarcasm in that one. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to guarantee you that I earned the right to be sarcastic about this. I with politics. I bet. Because in Brian Krebs in 2007 breaks the story on the Russian Business Network. Okay. This is go Google Russian Business Network, Brian Krebs. We had the RBS Royal Bank of Scotland hack 2008. As soon as that hits the press, the FBI knew about this. We couldn't talk about it. It was classified. So in 2008, my marching orders were to go out and to tell the financial services sector that Russian organized crime is the number one threat to the financial services sector in 2008. So uh -huh. I'm armed with this piece of information. So I marched down to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to the embassy suites to speak at the Tennessee Bankers Association Strategic Bank Technology Conference because I know I'm in the room with the right people to share this message. And I asked these folks, I go, how many of you guys are concerned that Russian organized crime could potentially impact you and your customers? And what do you think the reaction is? Sounds probably they laughed. No hands <laughs> were raised that day. They were like, that boy's from New York. He's crazy. And yep. He talks. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, man. And, and here it is. Here we are 13 years later, and everyone's like this. I can't believe the Russians are hacking us. I can't believe we're making a political issue. And I'm just like, everyone, shut up. Yeah. I'm like, now, do you guys understand why <laughs> I earned the right to be sarcastic about that? Yep. It sounds like it because no one took you seriously in the end. No one took the FBI seriously back then. And and now it's mainstream news all the time. What's the latest R evil hack or whatever, you know? And let's go let's come to the Chinese for a second. Because I you know, now that we you're getting me to open up here. I like to call it the silent war, which was between two thousand and ten that led up to it going public when community health systems was breached. We had so many situations going on where the Chinese government was impacting critical infrastructure, healthcare, major universities, state municipal governments. And I was trying to tiptoe around and alert the infrastructure that this is a problem. And how do you think they responded to me? 2010 to 2014. Oh, it's fine. Same way the bankers do. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, but just think about it, you know, and, and that's where, to me, it gets very frustrating that, you know, I see these things in the news and all of a sudden, you know, they're like, hey, you know, you're being xenophobic about it because a majority of the cases that I dealt with here were all foreign adversaries. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you know, we're not in a time period where countries go to war and they invade each other and they shoot artillery and missiles back and forth and kill large portions of the population. 
They do that in different ways. Uh, that in the information age, all these wars are being fought digitally and right under our noses. And so we we have our you know foreign adversaries, which you know they were we're not at war, but on the internet we certainly are. Um, just like you were saying with Russia and with with China, they're always trying to damage our. I don't know what you call it. I guess the rank in the world. Uh, if they damage our economy, if they cause systems to be uh, shut down and and slow down our progress, uh, they gain the advantage in the on the world stage. That, that's you know my my thoughts exactly. Wars will no longer be fought uh, in inside of our territories. They're going to be online. And when you look at the allegedly Russia shutting down the Ukrainian power grid. And now we've got pipelines being shut down. There's critical infrastructure yep. that is still vulnerable. And how do you start a war? You shut off people's power and let them take care of it themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you guys to go to YouTube and look at the video called Solar Sunrise. And solar in 1998, and see if you can pull it up now. In 1998, presidential directives, because people ask me, what is my opinion about the new uh, presidential directives? Mm -hmm. And I go, presidential directive 63 created a National Infrastructure Protection Center, made the FBI the lead law enforcement agency. I got sucked into cyber because I was the only one in the office who had a home computer because I knew I used Microsoft Excel for college and I knew how to use AOL. So I became the cyber guy. And if you look at this solar sunrise video, this was a video that I was going out with a VHS tape and playing it at conferences. And it was the FBI telling the private sector in 1998, 1999 about a case about hacking going up to the first Gulf War. And the big thing was the government needs to partner with the private sector to keep critical infrastructure safe because the cybercrime problem is only getting worse. This is 1998, guys. So when people say, how did this get so out of control? Technology just advanced and nobody thought about security because security is considered a cost and not an investment. Yep. And I mean, in 1998, computers were, they were not in the areas they are today. I mean, literally most critical infrastructure, and and I'm using literally correctly, most of the critical infrastructure for uh, uh, power grids, water plants, uh, oil pipelines, as we've learned, is backboned by computer systems. It's that's how it's controlled. Nothing is manual. Everything is is very much calculated because it's efficiency. They want things to run efficiently. They want things to run in an automated way. It's convenience. Yeah, and then they want to make more and money. You want the owner operator to use his cell phone mm-hmm. to log into an app made in the Ukraine. I mean, you, you know, know they- <laughs> we we were talking about in, uh, on the pipeline thing. We were talking about that on the uh, on another episode when it happened, and we were talking about that. I was like, we we can probably guarantee you they were running like Windows Seven or Windows XP and unpatched. And one day, someone decided to plug an Ethernet cord into it and say, "Oh, I can access from from my home because remote work and COVID." Plug an Ethernet cable into it. No, absolutely. And, yeah. and I've had to break the bad news to organizations about that. So I want to ask you guys as we're 
what, you know, the another question I get all the time is, when do you contact law enforcement? What has to happen for an organization to bring in the big, bad federal government? Well, I mean, what are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, really, uh, unless you're at a, a super high organizational level, right? It, you, there's no way that a small business is going to be able to gain assistance. Or am I wrong? Like, what what's the correct answer to that? Well, but, but here's the deal. When you get ransomware, you get the business email compromise. You know, locally, there's the FBI, there's the Secret Service. They work together. Uh, there's IC3.gov, which is a clearinghouse. Local law enforcement's not prepared to handle it because it's a really, you know, the amount of training. But that's never the right question because when and, and a majority of the enterprise data breaches that I worked on, I brought the bad news to these organizations. Mm. Now, if you think it's a bad day, if you're sitting here and you have to go, oh, wow, I got a problem. You know what it is when all of a sudden you knock on the door, you get a knock on the door and it's my ex-partner, Victor Rodriguez, saying, hey, listen, you got a problem, you're owned. We found all of your information <laughs> on the dark web. Wow. And maybe it's a municipal government or something like that. Yeah, seriously. And I, I mean, that's... That happens all the time. Small, you know, town governments getting getting hacked because a lot of them just don't have the funding to invest, or, or at least maybe they have the funding, but they're putting it in different things. You know, they're not actually buying um, or, or, or hiring a cybersecurity professional or or even just a simple IT staff member to uh, manage all these things. Or, and you know, they could have gotten Scott's book. Yep, I mean that's, that's what it boils down to. And and before we cut, I wanna I wanna make sure our readers know where to find your book, where to get in contact with you. So tell us tell us about your website. Tell us where to find the book. Absolutely. You know, I'm laughing because uh, what 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 I'd like to do here too is you know, find you can find me on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. I have a website. Uh, I have big plans because what I'm trying to do is build a course or a series of courses that I can get into the hands of every single small business in the United States. I think that would be very valuable because, you know, a lot of people, especially modern day, younger employees, they may not want to sit down and read a book. So I guarantee you that if you start doing, you know, like maybe even a, a small video course or something, I bet you, you could get a lot of people involved. Oh yeah, in no, because I'm getting hired now to put, I'm doing training for organizations now and they pay me and they're like, pay me well. Hey, Scott, give us your best hour. Right, right. We can only scratch the surface, so I'd rather make it smaller. And you know, it's my book, which is available on Amazon. The things that I want to leave with, the most important things for you to do is to keep your kids safe and to keep your elderly parents safe. Mm -hmm. And I always joke and I go, for that reason, you should buy my book. But I didn't write a book to make money to sell that. So connect with me on LinkedIn. And I'm going to send you those two chapters because to me, that's how passionate I am. I didn't, you know, do this. I mean, I make, have a great pension. I'm having so much fun in life. I'm doing what I love. And if you want to learn to keep your kids safe and keep your elderly parents safe, hit me up on LinkedIn uh, and just shoot me a note and say, hey, I heard you on the podcast and I like those chapters. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
I bet we can do that. I mean, we're gonna put um, we're gonna put links to uh, his LinkedIn or stuff like that into the description. So yeah, and we'll uh, share that on our website as well, so absolutely. our listeners can catch that. Yeah, I'm, and I'll give you guys some documents to put up on what we talked about, and give you a little thing on this little framework that I built. Because this is what I love to do, guys. I mean, I'm having a blast spending time talking to you. Uh, I mean, we've been talking for an hour. We didn't even scratch the surface. Oh yeah. I bet we can have you on more than once. <laughs> Slowly oh, work our way through. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is great, guys. I do appreciate uh, you know you having me on here tonight. Let me uh, share some of my stories with uh, your audience. Yeah, we appreciate your time, too. And at some point, we want to have you back, but we want to talk about FBI stuff. We, we do talk a lot about cyber, and I know you mm-hmm. can talk a lot about that. But I'm sure I'll there's a lot of cool stuff. cases next time we go on. Perfect. I will, we'll, we'll do the... We'll do that because honestly, I have to go back into my history. I mean, I work some great cases, but my time working cyber is all about being bad stories. I didn't have Mm -hmm. a lot of stories. My happy stories came when someone would say, Scott, I put two-factor authentication on my network and I prevented this from happening. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's to me. So that's why when I made that joke about I wish I had happy things to share, I've taken the lessons that I've learned and I try to – so you don't have to become the next cyber crime victim. That's what my goal is now. I didn't feel like I did enough when I was with the FBI. I didn't feel like I could help enough people. So today that's why if you follow what you're passionate about, the money will come. As long as you got a federal pension, of course. You know? <laughs> Look at that. Love yeah. that passion. Scott, Absolutely. thank you again for being here tonight. Thank you for your time. But thank you for the knowledge that you're able to share with people. Yep. Thank you so much for that. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate listening. And, and uh, they will definitely appreciate getting the information from you that you're going to send to us. So um, really appreciate having you on. We can't wait to have you next time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, thanks for listening to Still Love You, Bro. Once again, my name is Jess. And I'm Chris. Catch us on our social media. Uh, it's, it's Still Love You, Bro on Facebook. We have a website, stillloveyabro.com, which is part of our email. I'm Chris at stillloveyabro.com. And I'm Jess, J-E-S-S-E, at stillloveyabro.com. Remember that ya is a Y-A sign. That's your trademark. It is. I have to say it every time, just uh, just in case we have new listeners that don't know the don't know the email. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope Chloe will be back with us next week. She had some things going on, so absolutely. we miss her. So she is traveling. She's back on that tornado in Kansas. Um, <laughs> she might be remote next week. I hope we'll she see. brings us some tacos from this place she built up. No kidding. I would love that. I bet she will if we ask her really nice. Good. Chloe, bring us some tacos. Thank you for tuning in to Still Love You, Bro. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.